I'm very lucky that I have a Christian husband who, for my mind, and the ladies who know me know I say this, and I mean it every time, he's a mix between Ewan McGregor, because his name's Ewan, and Mr Bean. <laughs> he's more Mr Bean, isn't he, Colleen? I'm excited to have Colleen here. Colleen and I know each other really, really well. We've shared beds many a time, haven't we? <laughs> travelling, well, she's my travelling buddy. And she tells the worst jokes. Any of the she is women here know what I mean, right? How bad are her jokes? If you like bad, daggy dad jokes, ask Colleen for a joke. She's got a million of them. It's terrible. I also have three children. Um, I've got a 22-year-old son. He's the eldest, so he's the perfect one, right? We get it right on the first one. He's gorgeous. He's, done, uh, he's finished his Bachelor of Fine Arts, which means he now works for us, right? That's how good that degree is. Um, my second son is in the Navy. Yeah, go the Navy. Yes, and um, he, so he's based in Sydney, and for a few weeks there he's actually going to church. I was really thrilled. He, he rang me and said, Mum, um, going to church. It's great. And he said, there's a lot in the area. I didn't know which one to go to because there's a lot of weird churches, isn't there, Mum? I went, yeah, there is. And um, he said, I saw this one and it was called Hillsong and you used to listen to their music in the car. So I went there and I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and then he met a girl. So, yeah, he's off to sea soon um, to go blow up stuff. His years spent as a teenager blowing up things on the computer apparently paid off instead of studying and now that's his job. He says, I blow stuff up. I love it, Mum. So he's about to go blow stuff up in the um, Pacific and then when he comes back, he's going to move in with his girlfriend. So I'm doing the Christian mum face. <laughs> I love you and support you. I'm praying hard on that one. But anyway, and then I have a 16-year-old daughter. Anyone else in the club? Oh, Lord. She has more issues than Vogue, I'll tell you. Um, she's adopted from China. We adopted her when she was two. And having lived in a Chinese orphanage for two years, a government one, you can imagine there is a lot of issues. Um, I don't say a lot about it. Is that okay? So probably best not to ask me because that's her story. Needless to say, this message I'm about to give you has come out of the last couple of months with her. And when God taught me a lot of this stuff, I didn't think I'd actually share it. But anyway, here we are. So this message is for the women who have the equivalent of a 16-year-old terror in their life. Okay, whatever that looks like for you, this is, this is for you, okay? Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for these precious, precious women. Lord, I especially pray in this session for the women who didn't think they'd make it today. Or the women who ran here to get away from wherever, what was happening at home in their life. This is for them, Jesus. And all the other women, I pray that we surround them in prayer in this moment. Amen. So Cheryl and I were talking about the theme for today, and it's beauty and bravery. And, and bravery is good because there's a lot of us living it, right? And I was thinking about women of courage. And I thought of Deborah. Who doesn't want to be Deborah? Right? I, I love swords. I just want to go lead an army into battle, right? Or I could think about Esther who could save people from massacre. And what I loved about Essica is she saved them from a massacre and she wore a tiara. How good is that? <laughs> but when God was teaching me about bravery, he brought another woman to my attention. And that was Hagar. And I went, Lord, I don't want to be like Hagar. Let's not keep it to women. I want to be like Moses. Right? He's cool. He got to part seas. 
right? He got to get manna falling from the, from the sky. He got to um, climb up big fire, fiery mountains, all the cool stuff. And God went, that's great, but no Hagar. Good. Great. Hagar is a pretty minor character in the Bible, in the great biblical scheme of things. Hagar didn't get to fight battles. She didn't get to stop a massacre. She didn't get to part seas. Hagar was a slave, and I love we just sang that song. How good was the worship? And I knew God was so in it because every song is just going to touch base today. Hagar's a slave. She was a slave to Sarai and Abram before they were Sarah and Abraham. And Sarah's story starts in Genesis 16, for those playing along with us today. If you've got your Bible, Genesis 16 will be spending a lot of time there. And her story continues in Genesis 21. So what's Hagar's story? Sarah, Sarai and Abram have been promised by God a child, a son. That Abram is going to be the father to more descendants than he can count. And they're getting old. I mean, really old. Like wrinkly, wrinkly old. Like, and they're going to have a baby? That's a lights out scenario if I've ever heard one, don't you reckon? And still nothing's happened. Still no child. So they decide to take things in their own hands. Always a great strategy with God, right? And so they ask Hagar to be the concubine, to be the stand-in second wife, to have a baby for them. Hagar has no say. Hagar is a servant. She's a slave. Hagar is used and of low status. And she lives for years, day after day, in drudgery and powerlessness. She was a woman caught in a situation from which there was no solution and no respite. And many of us can live in that same place. For me, I live every day, year after year, with a special needs child. It could look different for you. It could be a cold marriage. It could be a teenager with a drug addiction. Caring for a husband with dementia. A draining disheartening, difficult life. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22, 23. So what do people get? This is something you'll never find on a poster in Koorong, I'm just telling you. So what do people get in this life for their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labour are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless, meaningless meaningless. When Solomon wrote this, he obviously got out of the wrong side of the existential bed that morning. It's meaningless. And the word meaningless is used 38 times in Ecclesiastes. But the English word meaningless doesn't really grasp the Hebrew translation. Its literal translation is vapor, mist, fog. And the Hebrew word is hevel, Life is hevel, hevel. And it's hard to see the purpose of life in the haze of pain and meaning in the cloudy confusion of life. Hagar was a woman living in the hevel, in the meaningless, misty, draining, disheartening, day in, day out existence. But God gives clarity, transparency, insight into her life, so much so that she declares, you are the God who sees me. How did she get to that point? That's what I wanted to know, God. 
How did she discover this? So let's look through the haze and the vapour and the fog of Hagar's life. Let's look at this hidden hero for some wisdom, some insights about how to live brave in the hevel, how to find meaning in the meaningless and purpose in the preposterous. And the first thing I learned from Hagar is this, that in times of mess, it will mess with your identity. Your sense of self can be chipped away by the scalpel of hardship. Sustained hardship carves away at identity. Now, if you look at Genesis 16, check it out. When Abram and Sarai talk to Hagar, not once do they use her name. Not once. It's a bit like that at home for me. I'm really called mum. I'm called more colourful words, shall we say. And when you hear that over and over and over again, you start to believe it. When you get called servant, slave, loser, idiot, insignificant, when you hear this over and over or when you think it over and over, it convinces you that's who you are. And I wonder if this is what Hagar experienced. There's a Jewish commentary that's very sacred to the Jewish people called the Midrash. And it teaches, this isn't in our Bible, this is in Jewish commentary, it teaches that Hagar was originally a princess. That she was an Egyptian princess. Genesis 12, if you look back, we see that Abram and Sarah visited the palace of the Pharaoh. And God performs great miracles to save Sarai while they're there. And while the Pharaoh, according to the Midrash, the Pharaoh is so impressed that he gives one of his daughters, Hagar, as a maidservant to Sarai. Have you felt like Hagar? I've said that to God. God, you said I was a princess, but I feel like a slave. God, our Father, is the Most High King and we are his beloved royal daughter. But the circumstances of life can wear you down, dishearten you, chip away at your confidence until you no longer feel like divine royalty, you just feel like a slave. And when you lose your divine identity, you start to lose your calling. You feel powerless rather than purposeful. Genesis 16, 6. It says that Hagar the slave had no power. Abram said to Sarai, Behold your servant. She's in your power. Do to her whatever you wish. If she was at my house, she'd do all the ironing. Anyone with me? <laughs> but Sarai dealt harshly with her. And we can feel a slave to our harsh circumstances. They can organise our day. They can spend our money for us. They can plunder our emotions, hijack all our thoughts, limit our social life, and we end up giving our attention and our affection to things that don't deserve it, and we ignore the things that do need it. Purpose feels like you're moving forward, right? But powerlessness is a downward spiral. Purpose feels fulfilling, but slavery is futile. Purpose feels empowering, but slavery is powerless. But through Hagar, God challenged my concept of powerlessness. Ecclesiastes 10.7. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. And God started to show me through Hagar. I was a princess, daughter of the Most High God, but I was being called to walk at a season in slavery for his purposes. 
Romans 6.22. But now you have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of God. Romans 6.18. Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. See, it's not bad to lose your power. What really matters is who you lose your power to. A slave is defined as a person entirely under the domination of some influence or person. A slave to God could be defined as a person entirely under the influence of God's dominion. And that kind of slavery is a great honour. But it's bad to be a slave to sin, but good to be a slave to righteousness. It's bad to be a slave to fear, but good to be a slave to faith. It's bad to be a slave to bitterness, but good to be a slave to love. Romans 6.16 Don't you realise you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? So here's my first question for you this morning. What are you a slave to? And don't think you aren't. What has your obedience? What powerfully influences you? What dominates your thoughts and feelings? For my daughter, it's the latest iPhone. We're all a slave to something, even if it's our ego. We give our power to whatever we fear the most or whatever we love the most. Did you get that? We give our power to whatever we fear the most or whatever we love the most. The cool thing with God is he's both those things. We're in slavery to whatever we give our power to. But out of freedom, we can choose to be a slave to God. Not because we're scared of him and he's a big scary person, but because he is so captivating. He's so entrancing. I'm so compelled by this God of wonders, of galaxies and splendor, that we freely surrender to him as master. And we're powerless to his glory. I've decided it's better to be a slave to God than a queen to my ego. The Midrash I was telling about, this sacred commentary for the Jews, it also teaches that when the Pharaoh gave Hagar to Abram and Sarai, he said this, it would be better for my daughter to be a handmaiden in this Sarai's house than a noblewoman in the palace of Egypt. Like Hagar, I would rather be a slave in the house of God than a princess in the palaces of earth. And this just isn't a romantic notion because the rubber's going to hit the road when you choose this. It's a brave choice because when I choose this, it means I'm going to choose the cross over comfort. I'm going to choose purpose over power. I'm going to choose anonymity over admiration. I'm going to choose eternity over my ego. And sometimes we are called to a season to sacrifice our personal power, our will, our desires, to be a slave to the greater purposes of God. And just as Hagar went through a season of being a slave to Sarai, Joseph was a slave or a prisoner for 13 years. The Jewish people were slaves to the oppression of the Pharaoh in Egypt for 210 years. Sometimes it's God's sovereign will we go through a season of slavery. But here's the good news. You ready for the spoiler alert? 
Hagar didn't stay a slave. Any more than Joseph stayed a slave or the Jewish people stayed in Egypt. They're all freed. Slavery is a season. It's not your identity. So to be brave, you need to grasp the concept. Who you are is different from what you are doing. Because seasons change. Circumstances change. Your roles will change. But your identity does not. Knowing you are a beloved, treasured, cherished daughter of God is the source of your courage. The first step in being brave is not doing anything. It's being. It's being something. And tough times reaffirm your identity in Christ. I'm going to talk more about that in the second session. To be brave in a season of slavery, see yourself as God sees you. Okay, here's the second lesson I've learned from Hagar. And I was still learning it when I drove away from my daughter yesterday, muttering to myself. The bravest thing you can do is love your enemy. That can be the hardest thing to do, can't it? The story continues. Hagar becomes pregnant. But surprise, surprise, it didn't make things better for her. Genesis 16.4 says that when Hagar was pregnant, she began to treat Sarai with contempt. Looked at her with contempt. Other versions says she was despised in her sight. She was a slight to her eye. How she saw Sarai determined her attitudes and her actions. Hagar failed to see Sarai how God saw Sarai. Hagar saw an enemy. God saw his own image. Hagar saw an infertile woman. God saw the mother of nations. Hagar looked at her contemptuously, but God looked at her redemptively. Hagar's failure is a winning lesson for us. We fail when we fail to see our enemy as God sees our enemy. Jesus taught us to love our enemies, the one hurting us, the one making us a slave to their sin and their pain. Matthew 5, verses 44-45. I'm going to read from the message version. It's the one God's trying to plaster inside my head. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Here's the challenge. Let it bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. Then you're working out your true selves, your God-created self. To be brave in a season of slavery, first see yourself as God sees you. Secondly, see your enemies as God sees them. All right, let's continue with the story. Hagar the slave has been used to have a baby for Abram because Sarah, Sarai, pardon me, has been unable to conceive. When Hagar gets pregnant, she finally has power over Sarai and she foolishly uses that power to diminish her. And Sarai fights back sin for sin. Not a great strategy, is it? And she ups her cruelty against Hagar, so much so that Genesis 16.5 tells us that Sarai treated Hagar so harshly she ran away. And she ran into the wilderness in the direction back home to Egypt. At this moment, our hero Hagar seems anything but brave. 
In fact, this is such a defining moment for Hagar, we discover her name means flight. That's her name. And we can dismiss her running away as cowardly, but it's all in how you see it. See, sometimes you find God most profoundly in the wilderness. And anyone who's been Christian longer than five years goes, Amen. Those up to 50 years, you should be preaching it. But anyway, (laughs) see, so often we despise the season in the wilderness. We see it as a time of spiritual dryness and isolation and feeling lost, feeling alone. We're in this meaningless hevel. We're in the mist. We're in the fog. And we wonder if God can even see us and if he's forgotten our address. But God can see our time in the wilderness very differently from us. He... What we see as a time of isolation and grief, he can see as a time of refining and redefining. Ecclesiastes 7.3, more with the happy stuff. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. That's Ecclesiastes 7.3. When I was in a time of wilderness and a time of dryness and isolation, God gave me a specific verse to challenge me about how I saw this time. And I have this verse printed out and it's stuck above my desk where I work. And the verse is Hosea 2. 14, 15. This is what works for me. I don't know about you. And it says this. It's again the message version. And now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. Anyone else who's been walking with God for a while goes, really? (laughs) You're going to start again? Okay. I'm taking her back out to the wilderness. Back out to the wilderness where we had our first date, and I'll court her, and I'll give her bouquets of roses, and I'll turn her heartbreak valley into acres of hope. And she'll respond as she did as a young girl. Those days when she was fresh out of Egypt, a young girl out of Egypt. And as I was typing this message at my desk, and I looked up at the verse, I went, wow, there's a profound connection right there with Hagar. She was a young girl called out of Egypt. She left as a young girl to her calling. And sometimes we need to go back to go forwards. God can lead us out into the wilderness, return to our Egypt, so we can remember the passion of our calling. We can remember the reason we so willingly went. We can redefine our mission During this time in the spiritual wilderness, we can go through the same process as Hagar. The process of refining and redefining involves two crucial questions. And the angel asked Hagar in Genesis 16.8, Where have you come from? And where are you going? Now, interestingly enough, I discovered these two questions are used in the process of dead reckoning. Anyone a sailor here? No, me either. I'll just throw up. But anyway... Stay with me. Dead reckoning is a navigational term. And it's a term used for the process of guiding lost ships. When a ship is lost at sea, lost in the hevel, lost in the fog, in the mist, in the confusion, it first determines where it has come from. It identifies its last known position. And then based on the speed it's been travelling at and how long it's been travelling at, an estimation can be made of the ship's current position. And 
then given that point of reckoning, a new course of action can be determined. Running away to spend time with God when we're emotionally and spiritually lost at sea can be a time for us to do a dead reckoning. Like the angel, ask yourself, where have I come from? Remember your last known position when you were sure of yourself and what you were doing. Remember that. And then consider how you've been travelling, at what speed, in what conditions. And then reposition yourself to replot a new journey. Jesus would have times of dead reckoning, of running away to be with God. Look at Luke 5.16. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And we too need time to retreat for prayer, reflection, evaluation, dreaming, planning, resting, listening, a time of stillness. So in this time of wilderness, ask yourself, where have I come from? What experiences and expectations do you need to grieve? I have to keep grieving the fact that I never am going to have the daughter I thought I would have. got to grieve that what's your thing you have to grieve what have you got to let go at what needs to heal what do you need to forgive in others and in yourself what negative habits and patterns have you created because you had to survive that's okay but is it time to let them go also what have you done well where have you been faithful to God what have you learned from God best of all how has he been faithful to you and once you've reflected on where you've been, you can replot your journey, plan a way out of the hevel. You can ask the second question. The second question the angel put to Hagar, where are you going? The translation of the Hebrew word here for going is halak. Halak means not just where are you going, it also means, I love this, what are you becoming? Not just where you are going, but ask yourself, who do I want to become out of this? Because this experience will change you, won't it? And it can either change you for better or for worse. Ask yourself, what do I want? Let God ask you, what do you want? You know, there's four times in the gospel, Jesus asked people, what do you want? In fact, the very first words of Jesus in the gospel of John, his first words, and I think that's significant, was, what do you want? He asked two guys who were following him, and they said, we want to be your disciples. And so they were. Another time, in Matthew 20, 32, Jesus asked two blind men, what do you want? What can I do for you? Mark 10, 36, Jesus asked John and James, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we'd like the sparkly thrones right next to you. <laughs> Luke 18, a blind beggar comes to Jesus and Jesus says in verse 41, what do you want? And I love that in two of these four instances, the people who asked Jesus were literally blind. They could not see. And we too can be blinded by bitterness and grief and fear and confusion that we can't see. We can be like John and James. We can be blinded by power and pride that we can't see what God is doing. In a time of dead reckoning, we need to remove whatever is blinding us. 
whether it's bitterness or fear or expectation, so we can see what Jesus is doing, where he wants to take us, who does he want us to become. Think of Peter, who Jesus called out of the boat and onto a stormy sea to walk on water. When he had his eyes on Jesus, what could he do? Walk on water. When he's had his eyes on his circumstances, the wind and waves, what happened? He sunk. A time of wilderness helps us take our eyes off the circumstances and put them back on Jesus. A time in the wilderness, a time for dead reckoning, to find your position in the heaven is a time to get back on course. A time to ask, where have I been? Where am I going? Who am I becoming? What do I want? You know, God knows the answers, doesn't he? But he wants you to answer them yourself, to reckon it for yourself, to discover it for yourself, so you will find your resolve and your courage. To be brave in a season of slavery. First, see yourself as God sees you. Second, see your enemies as God sees them. And thirdly, see your wilderness as God sees it. Okay, let's pick up the story. After Hagar answers these two questions, the angel tells her, go back and submit. And that if she does, she will have more descendants than she can count. Does that promise sound familiar? The angel tells her she will have a son and to name him Ishmael. And by the way, and this is a bit I could relate to, he's going to be wild. He's going to be as untamed as a wild donkey. And he's not going to get on with his family. Yay, God! So after this redefining time in the wilderness, Hagar shows us the next step in spiritual slavery. Go back, return and submit. Now before I go on, I'm just going to stop for a minute. I want to say something crucial. God told Hagar to return and submit to Sarai, but I believe this was less about submitting to a person and more about submitting to a purpose. It is never, ever God's will that you return and submit to an abusive partner. Never, ever. If you are in a relationship of abuse and violence, you are not to return to that. You're to run. Run hard to God. And if that is an issue for you, and I know there can be a lot of isolation and a shame, attached with that I would love you to be the bravest you've ever been today and quietly go see Cheryl because she's skilled up okay okay Hagar was told to go back and submit to God's plan back to the household of Sarai and Abram as a slave now despite her time of dead reckoning don't you think it would be natural for Hagar to say why God why on earth would I go back to a nasty Sarai. Go back to slavery and drudgery. Go back to have a wild child. Why would I go back? Tell me why. Because there's blessing in obedience, that's why. There's promise in trust. In Genesis 16.10, Hagar is given the promise, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Genesis 21:17 Hagar is given the blessing God promises to make a great nation from Ishmael's descendants 
And we discover right through the Old Testament, God makes good on this blessing and promise. Genesis 25 tells us that Ishmael had 12 sons who founded 12 tribes. Sound familiar? There's a whole sermon in that. Anywho, Eshua married one of Ishmael's daughters. Isaiah 67, that's chapter 60, verse 7, tells us Ishmael's firstborn son and his brothers are founders of nations that will be gathered up into the kingdom of God. All right, Ross, I'm going to skip this next point because of time. But the next point I was going to just do a bit of a Bible geek thing. A lot of people think that verse, that Ishmael won't get on with his relatives, is a prophecy about the problems between Muslims and Christians. Can I encourage you to do research? There's nothing to substantiate that, if you really research it. Let's remember, she was receiving a blessing. And in fact, if you look at Galatians 4... Paul says that Hagar's son represents Jews. That, if you look up Genesis, Galatians 4, it says that Paul uses Hagar's son to represent Jews, not Muslims. They represent sla- uh, Jews who are enslaved to the law. And that Sarah's son represents Christians who are free from the law. So go do some research. I read a lot about it. God is blessing Hagar. All right, like Hagar, God has made promises to you to propel you to his purposes, to make it okay to go back to a trial, to give you courage. And we willingly go back with courage, not because we're gluttons for punishment and God's a big fat meaning, but because we trust in God, we obey God. Okay, slide 18, Ross. We can hold on to promises like 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18. For our momentary light affliction, I had a laugh at God. Really? It does not feel momentary and it does not feel light, just saying. He says, but that's going to produce in you an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Yes, Lord, I'll have that. James 1.12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because of having stood the test. That person will receive a crown, sparkles. Bring it on, a crown of life. And I chose these two promises because you don't see the reward immediately. Same as Hagar. She was promised good stuff, but she didn't go back and the next day it happened. She had to wait. And so I've got a question for you. What if God gives you what you want, but like Hagar, you've got to wait a long time? Sarah was 100 before she had her baby. Joseph had to wait 20 years, most of that in slavery, before his dreams came true. Caleb had to wait 45 years before he got his plot of the promised land. Do you want God, even if he doesn't give you what you want on this side of heaven? Moses never got to walk in the promised land. David never saw the temple built. Paul never saw Jesus return. In Hebrews 11... 13, it says all these people died, still believing what God promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it. They saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. How about this? What if God is going to give you what you want, but it doesn't look like what you imagined? (laughs) Oh, I heard that. James and John thought Jesus was going to be a political king and they'd be on the thrones. Look what happened. When the Holy Spirit promised Simeon 
that he'd lived to see the Messiah, I bet he didn't think it would be a little baby belonging to a couple from Nazareth. (coughs) Promises are encouraging. They're motivating. But don't want a promise more than you want God. Don't let your faith in a promise replace your faith in God. See promises as God sees them. Reminders of God's faithfulness, but never a replacement for God's sovereignty. So here's Hagar. She's armed with a promise. One that wouldn't happen for years. She goes back and she submits. But you know, it wasn't the promise that motivated it. It wasn't the promise that got her excited. She didn't even comment on that. What got her excited, what got her refocused was the joy and the honour of knowing this God of wonders, God of majesty, God of the galaxies took time to see her. Genesis 16.3, she says, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. And she went back to a tough place because she saw God. And she knew that God had seen her. The living one had seen her, truly seen her. He had seen her failures. He had seen her dreams, her desires. He would seen her selfishness. He would seen her struggle. He had truly seen her. And he called her by name. When she goes in the wilderness, look at the first words of the angel, Hagar. He called her by name. He called her into purpose and he called her into promise. And like Hagar, we know the Lord sees And when we know that, we learn to see differently. To be brave in your season of slavery. First, see yourself as God sees you. Secondly, see your enemies as God sees them. Third, see your wilderness as God sees it. And then finally, see your promises as God sees them. In Genesis 21, we see how the story ends. We read Sarah's son, Isaac, grows up and there's still trouble between Sarah and Hagar and it gets so bad that Sarah insists Abraham disowns them and kicks them out. And once again, Hagar's back out in the wilderness. And just when Hagar and Ishmael are about to die of thirst in the wilderness, verse 19 tells us that God opened her eyes she sees what he sees she sees a well she finds water in the wilderness and this moment at the well is the moment she's released from slavery now the first time Hagar ran to the wilderness we learned her name means flight but there's another translation for the name Hagar and it's better suited to this wilderness experience it divides her name into two Hagar And it translates as, this is the reward. Isn't that cool? The second time she's in the wilderness, she's rewarded for her obedience with freedom. And Hagar and Ishmael settle in a wilderness community. Ishmael grows up, it says, to be a skillful archer, which I'm thinking is a biblical version of growing up to be like Dwayne Rock Johnson. And then he marries a good Egyptian girl, just like Mama. So what did we learn about bravery from Hagar? We learned that bravery is all about how you see. Learning to see what God sees. When you see what he sees, failure looks like forgiveness. Isolation looks like a cloud of witnesses. 
defeat looks like chariots of fire are on the way. And I put a couple of scriptures up there. If you want to go and do some study on those stories, it's fantastic, especially the one in Two Kings. And with this new insight like Hagar, we can go back to the same situation but with a whole new perspective. Same circumstances, different vision. And if you keep your eyes on God, you can be more courageous than you ever knew you could. Keeping your eyes on God means, like Peter, you can walk on water. Like Moses, you can walk through water. And like Hagar, you can find living water in a wilderness. Max Licato, just to finish up, teaches us a great, tells a great story that teaches us about seeing God. It goes like this, the story. A white horse appears in the field of an old man and the villagers congratulate him, say, you're blessed. When the horse disappears from his stable one day, the villagers say, you're cursed. And the old man says, whether it is a blessing or a curse, I cannot say. All we see is the fragment. Who is to say what will come next? I cannot see as God sees. When the horse returned two weeks later, the villagers said it was a blessing. The old man merely said, I give thanks and his will be done. Two weeks later, the man's only son was tossed from the horse on a ride and both his legs were broken. The town bemoaned the horse as a curse. The old man said it as God wills. I do not see what he sees. When the war draft took all the young men from the village, the old man's son was left at home because his legs were still broken. The villagers once more praised the horse. The old man said, we only see a sliver of the sum. No one is wise enough to know all. Only God knows. Only God sees through the hevel, through the vapour. We cannot see how the bad may be good. God is sovereign. God is good. And he works all things together for good. If we believe this with our whole body, our mind and our soul, we can be brave in any season. So my lovely sisters... See your identity as God sees it. See your enemies as God sees them. See your wilderness as God sees it. And see your promises as God sees it. And you will live brave. Amen. We thank you, Jesus, for Hagar. I just thank you for this real woman with all her failures and ups and downs and all the good stuff and all the bad stuff and her wild, wild kid. We thank you, Jesus. Teach us to see what you want us to see. Though we now see through a mirror, we only see partially and we only see cloudy. One day we shall see things as they truly are. Until then, keep us brave. Amen. I think I've eaten into.